Morning. Oh, rowdy bunch. I like that. Hey. Wow. You guys are keeping Starbucks in business, I see this morning. Whoa, no, you're not at a rock concert. You're at the 11 o'clock service at the church at Rocky Peak. This is going to be fun. Hey, if you're here for the first time, my name is Dre. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors on staff. As you walked in, you were handed a program. Inside of your program is a message note sheet. That's going to be a great tool for you to be able to follow along. Or if you want to draw a picture, I gave you big margins this week. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for us and we can get started. Father God, as we continue to talk about how you, Jesus, are the King, I pray for that truth over all of our lives this morning, Lord. The last couple of weeks we've been talking about how big you are, and I confess that in my life I shrink you. But I love the fact that even my biggest thought of you doesn't even come close to how massive our almighty, infinite, eternal God is. I pray today as you establish through your scripture that you are in control of your church, you lead your church, that we be a people that joyfully submit to that and go, God, you are the one that knows how this works. I pray that whether we've been walking with you for years and years or whether we've just given our lives to you, that whoever we are, that we walk out of this place going, man, our God is big, our God is mighty, our God truly is awesome. We thank you for your word, Lord. In your son's name we pray, amen. I want to start this morning off with a story. See, several years ago, I came to a pretty revelatory, life-changing discovery, and that was this. Having been born and raised in Southern California, I came to find out that what we call rain in Southern California is not what the rest of the nation calls rain. Did you know that other states laugh at us? See, if you're like me, born and raised out here, it starts to mist a little bit and our infrastructure falls apart. People don't know how to drive anymore. You think it's a biblical plague. And then you go to another state and you think you're gonna die. <laughs> Several years ago, I got the opportunity, I flew out to Tulsa, Oklahoma. My best friend, Patrick, our kids pastor here at Rocky Peak, he had finished up a year of college out there in Tulsa, and we were going to drive back to L.A. So I got there on a Friday afternoon. It was one of those situations where uh, he had his whole life packed into his forerunner, and we were eager to get back home. So we got on the road about 1 in the morning. And as we were leaving his campus, he ran into his RA, and they were saying goodbye to each other. And his RA goes, hey, you guys also heard that there's a tornado warning, right? Now, we're two SoCal kids. We're naive to this. Tornado is a foreign word. Earthquakes, I get. But tornadoes, I have no frame of reference. And I do two things. I first, I look up into the sky, and the sky is beautifully clear. I'm like, well, we're fine, right? There's no clouds or anything. And the second thing is in my arrogance, I go, well, I saw the movie Twister. Like, <laughs> tornadoes are big and loud, right? You just don't drive towards it. Duh, you're overreacting. So we get in the car, and again, if you've experienced rain or a storm outside of California, it doesn't take long for the weather to turn, does it? We weren't on the road that long before everything fell apart. As Patrick and I have recounted this story, we call, we describe what we experienced the perfect storm. 
because all of a sudden, my beautifully clear sky was covered in clouds and it was thunder and lightning like I had never seen before. All of a sudden, there was a torrential biblical downpour coming down on us. And then I thought I had experienced hail once or twice, like a little bit of snow mist or something, like golf balls were coming down on us. And we couldn't see more than a foot in front of the car. We pulled over on the si- over the side of the road, two kids from SoCal looking at each other, scared out of our minds. And I'm sitting there reflecting in my head, man, I severely misjudged how bad this could be. Now, I share that story because that last statement explains a big truth I want to talk about today. See, there's many situations in our lives where I'm sure many of us could go, you know what, I thought I minimized something, I minimized a situation, I minimized an action or someone, but the reality is what I minimized turned out to be very dangerous, turned out to be very deadly, And because I minimized and didn't see the danger of it, it turned around and bit me in the butt. Now, there's we could probably spend hours going through many different situations of that. But for our purposes today, I want to talk about one core area, one core thing that we minimize. And the fact that we minimize it is very dangerous to us. And that's the area of sin. Have you noticed that as as people, we are really good at minimizing what sin is? and the consequences of sin. We have what we call, we create these sin scales, and I like to call it the little white lie scale, where it's like, it's okay, it's just a little white lie, or it's just one affair, or it's just a drug, or it's just a couple thousand from the business, nobody ever knew I took it. And we often do this, that we, we create these scales and we compare ourselves and we try to find the worst of the worst around us. Oh, it's just a little sin. It could be, I'm not murdering people or I'm not murdering a lot of people or something like that. <laughs> we, kind of, we create these skills. And here's the truth that we see in Scripture. The thing I love about the Bible as it being truth is that the Bible never holds back. It tells us exactly bluntly what truth is. And when the Bible describes sin, It does not describe this small inconvenience or a frustration or a nuisance. The Bible describes sin as rebellion, or the word we use a lot at Rocky Peak, treason against our king. The Bible describes sin as that which leads us to death, destruction, and ultimate separation from God in this life, in the next. The Bible never minimizes sin. It treats it as a big deal. If you've been with us in our journey in the Gospel of Mark, if you remember back to chapter 2, there was the paralytic, the paralyzed man on the mat who had the best friends in the world because they dug a hole in the roof to get him to Jesus. And what do they all want? Physical healing. What's the first thing Jesus tells this man? Your sins are forgiven. Jesus wasn't minimizing his physical torture, but he was going, he was making a point for all of humanity, there's a bigger problem in our lives, and that's the problem of sin. Now, there's a lot of different ways we could talk about how we minimize sin, but in our scripture today, for our purposes, one of the ways that we minimize sin, and this is going to be our focus, is when we treat sin purely as an external issue. What I mean by that is we see sin as something that happens to us, as something that gets shot. So we build walls and we try to keep ourselves in like these purified bubbles and go, hey, as long as I keep myself safe and hidden, I'm not going to deal with sin. But what we're going to see in our scripture today is Jesus radically reorients our way of thinking and go, sin does not have its origin in the outside. 
Sin has its origin on the inside. Sin comes from the human heart. And the thing about the human heart is that the human heart is what drives us. The heart is what's responsible for the majority of our thoughts and our actions. To God, the state of our heart is of the utmost importance. And so we're going to see today that Jesus declares, Jesus shows us the source of our problem as a people. But he also continues to shine the light in his power and go, what you need is a limitless, all-powerful God, and that's found in Jesus. There on your note sheet, I put a quote from Dallas Willard, the late Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors and thinkers of all time. He writes, the heart is precisely what God observes and addresses in human beings. He cares little for or nothing for outward show. He responds to the heart because it is above all who we are, who we choose and have chosen to be. What God wants of us can only come from there. And so if God wants our hearts, then you could see that he wants to take a messed up heart and turn it into a brand new creation. If you're here for the first time, let me take a few moments to just bring you up to speed. Since about the beginning of the year, we've been in a series called Jesus the King, where we've been going through the gospel of Mark in the New Testament. Mark was a key leader in the early movement of Jesus, the early church, and Mark was a close friend and confidant of the apostle Peter, one of the original 12 disciples that walked with Jesus. What we have in the Gospel of Mark is an account of the life and teachings of Jesus, and what Mark is writing is Peter's firsthand account of what actually happened. And if we were to sum up the message of Mark, it would be that the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior, is here, has come into time and space in a powerful way, is here to right wrongs, is here to save his people, and is here to usher in a brand new era of the kingdom of God. I like to look at it as this, Jesus walking on our, earth is, on our earth is screaming, the kingdom of God is here, and that changes everything. And the la last couple of weeks, we've looked at these miracles that Jesus has done. Again, we see that his kingdom message is backed by ultimate kingdom power. And so if you were with us, you remember that Jesus fed the 5,000 plus. Last week, we talked about how Jesus walked on water. Again, these pictures were given because often we can shrink our image of God down. And we're reminded that our God knows no boundaries. Now, with that big God in mind, we're going to head into a conflict he has, yet another one with the religious leaders of the time. And so if you've got your Bible or your app, open them up and turn your apps on. We're going to be in Mark chapter 7. Now we're going to be starting in verse 1, but before we dig into it, I want to set the scene a little bit to give you a little bit of context. What we have is a delegation of the religious leaders of the time. I like to call them the religious establishment. Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law, keepers of the law. They've been sent up from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you consider, would be the capital city of Jewish religion and authority. So the fact that a delegation from Jerusalem is coming up, I like to think of it as if a varsity team has been sent. And they're here once again to confront Jesus. Now, in a pre-Facebook and Twitter world, the word about Jesus has been spreading. The word of Jesus has been going, people are coming, lives are being changed, and Jesus is very dangerous to the religious establishment. See, the religious leaders who seem to be the primary antagonists in the Gospels, they had created this system where if you want to be holy, if you want to be pure in front of God, then what you do is you need a strict adherence 
to a ton of man-made rules, regulations, and traditions. That is how you earn your place in God's eyes. And often these rules and these traditions that they followed so vehemently were at the neglect or a flat-out rejection to God's actual word, the Old Testament. And so obviously you see the danger because Jesus was leading people back to God's word, back to the heart of God's word. He was giving people a freedom to how they would run after, passionately run after Yahweh. And so that would usurp their power. So here they were again, they were always trying, how do we take this guy out? How do we gun for him? And they're employing a strategy that we saw back in Mark chapter 2, where to attack Jesus, they're not going to attack him directly. They're going to go after his disciples and try to discredit him as a teacher. See, they're going to make an accusation. Your disciples are breaking the law. That makes them unclean. And how are you possibly a good rabbi? How do you possibly love the Lord Yahweh if the way you're leading your followers leads him to be defiled before the Lord? Back in chapter 2, we saw this where they accused him, your disciples aren't fasting. What are you doing? Again, your disciples are eating. They're breaking the heads off grain on the Sabbath. What are you doing? Do you not care for any of this? And so the conflict is going to be, who do you think you are? Do you have no regard for the law? And Jesus is going to respond, I do. I have regard for God's law, not yours. So let's start reading. In chapter one, excuse me, chapter seven, verse one. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of the, his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. Now, many of your Bibles probably have parentheses starting at verse 3, right? That's an editorial comment Mark is doing later. What he's going to do is he's going to explain the ceremonial rituals to a heavily Roman audience who's not familiar with Jewish customs. The Pharisees, and all the, Jew the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? So let's stop right there for a minute and let's paint the scene. The accusation was an accusation of being unclean. And you got to understand, this was a big deal. This was a heavy accusation because in this culture, in this society, being unclean meant, uh, had, a, had some serious consequences. If you were unclean for whatever reason, and there were a lot of reasons to be, that made you unclean, if you were unclean, you couldn't have physical contact with anybody else because you would transfer your defilement to them and they would be unclean. Think of the lepers that we've seen in the Gospels. If you had a disease like that, nobody could touch you because you were unclean. If you couldn't touch a dead body or a dead animal, you could, that made you unclean and you had to wash yourself. Now, in those two examples, keep in mind, Jesus did touch those people. And so what they're saying here, the issue is ceremonial washing, because not only was the ramification, you couldn't have contact with other people, but if you were unclean, you couldn't go to the temple. In the nation of Israel, the worship of God was centralized in the temple. If you couldn't go in the temple, you couldn't worship God. And so they're saying, hey, you're this rabbi, right? You're this teacher. Why don't you want your followers to worship God? 
And the conflict happens around this idea of ceremonial washing. And what we're going to see is we're going to see where they have added to God's law to create the straitjacket of human traditions. Because in the Old Testament, in the law that God was given, there were ways that we were prescribed ways to be clean. We were because the heart behind cleanliness is actually a very powerful one. See, the heart, the Pharisees are trying to say, well, the issue is we as defiled, sinful people cannot stand before a beautiful, blameless, holy God if we're unclean. And on that point, Jesus would agree with them. That is true. The disagreement, the conflict is on what they perceive to be the source of the defilement and their solution to it. And that's going to be the issue because the big, the, the specific issue they brought up with the disciples was ceremonial washing. Now, back in Exodus chapter 30, the law that was given to the priest, so to a specific type of person and a specific job, was that if you were a priest in the tabernacle, before you performed your sacred duties, you would ceremonially wash your hands and arms, you would ceremonially wash your feet, depending on the duty, you would probably wash your whole body as well, and that was given to the priest. What we see with a lot of these man-made tradition of the elders, if you saw in that passage, they kept coming back to that phrase, why are they not following the tradition of the elders? They're not saying, why are they not following the word of God? They're saying, why are they not following the tradition of the elders? What often happened with this oral law and tradition is they would look at these steps towards holiness that God has prescribed, and their response would, we're going to take them 10 steps further. And so in this specific case, the ceremonial law prescribed to the priest, the religious leaders are going, that's not good enough. We're going to apply this to everybody. So regardless whether you're a priest or not, you have to do this. And they use the example of the marketplace because maybe you're out at Target shopping and you bump somebody who's unclean and that made you unclean. So you got to go and do it. Their expectation was a devout Jew before they ate, before they broke bread, would have a small ceremony and wash their hands and arms in a specific way so that they wouldn't eat with defiled hands. It was such a big deal to them that a rabbi later wrote on this issue, whoever eats bread without previously washing their hands, it is as though he had intercourse with a harlot. Now remember the phrase that they used to justify their position, the tradition of our elders. And this is the big, big conflict. See, what had happened is their oral law, their tradition over the years had become weighted to the point where it was considered as important, and in many cases, even more important than God's actual word. Now, it's easy to read something like this and to vilify these religious leaders and the Pharisees very black and white, and be like, come on, guys, get your acts together. What are you doing? But the reality is we need to understand it's a little more nuanced of the fact that it didn't start off with the intent, we're going to usurp God and mess up scripture. Actually, the heart behind their original intent was a really powerful one. Mike had mentioned this back in the Religion Kills series. The Pharisaic movement actually was a great movement when it started. The idea of the oral law and the traditions was actually really good. The heart behind it at its best was the Lord has called us to be holy. And so what we want to do is we want to break that down practically so that every man and woman that loved God, that loved Yahweh, would know practical steps on how to do that in their daily life. 
that's actually a very good intent. And to kind of put ourselves into their shoes, I want to use an example that we do that in the modern church. That can be a very helpful tool. One example is the idea of music. We just sang worship music, right? And we do that. We will always do that every time we gather as a church because we see the power and the value and we see that example in Scripture in both Testaments that one of the things they did as they gathered was they worshiped through song, which is an amazing thing. But you know what we don't find in Scripture is we don't find a specific verse that highlights a specific style of music and says this is God's style and the only style you can do. And so that leaves a little bit of mystery, does it not? And so we sit there and go, okay, so then we have to make a choice, right? We're going to worship, so we're going to choose, and so we're going to do rock music. Or other churches, we're going to do a combination. Or some churches, we're going to do hymns. Some churches, we're going to do these venues where you can pick all kinds of different style. We've got one venue with a guy playing a ukulele and hula dancers, which I saw once at a church. Uh, awesome. <laughs> it's you have all these different options, and so you see this tool can be a good thing. Hear me very clearly. When Scripture doesn't go into specifics, having preferences, creating tools can be a very helpful thing. It can be a very powerful thing. The problem that we see with the religious leaders, to use the language we used back in the Religion Kill series, is the tools the legitimately helpful tools became a rigid rule across the board as if God himself had said it. And all of a sudden it became, hey, this would be a great thing for us to do. Became, hey, God would want you to do it, and if you don't do it, you obviously don't love God. Let's go back to the music example, because if you've been around the church world, that becomes a very divisive thing very quickly. And all of a sudden, it doesn't become, oh, you just have a preference or your church has a preference. It becomes, hey, if you don't only play rock music, you obviously don't love Jesus. Hey, if you don't only do this or if you don't play this amount of songs or do it like this, you obviously don't love Jesus. And that's not backed by Scripture. And that was the issue with these religious leaders. What they had done is they had created at its worst definition religion. At its very worst, religion is man-made rules that destroy a relationship with God. Because oftentimes these rules are just sending the message. When they become the golden rule, the way the Pharisees had led and, 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 and uh, the way the Pharisees had lorded their influence had created a culture where what everybody knew was that I want to pursue Yahweh, but I'm not living up because the common man or woman did not possibly live up to all the rules and traditions that were expected of them. So they knew that they were always going to miss the mark. God must hate me. I'm, a, I'm, I'm awful. I'm worthless. And here I have these religious leaders going, I bet you wish you loved God as much as I do, right? Because I'm following all the rules, sucker, and so you're going around. And that's what religion does. Religion takes God's heart, God's intent, God's passion for its people. It creates these rules and these traditions, and it chokes the joy right out of it. See, the biggest heartbreak to me in all this was the fact that the way what had happened, this good movement that had gotten distorted, that had fallen away by the time we get to the Gospels in Jesus' day and age. What had happened is for many of the people that wanted to follow Yahweh passionately, these traditions of the elders 
and God's word were very synonymous with one another. And so they could view the Old Testament as burdensome. They could view the Old Testament as a straitjacket when it's not. The heartbreaking thing is that these religion removes the intent and the power of God's actual word. See, it's easy for us in this day and age to look at the Old Testament and to kind of see it negatively, to kind of look at it and go, well, it's just a set of rules, right? They were outdated. They're not for here. When Jesus came, he changed all that because that was wrong, right? And that's actually not true. See, the law was given to us not simply to be a set of rules, but the law was given to us to restore our most important relationship, and that was with God. See, the heart of the law was that if you take the most famous part of the law, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, when you see commandments such as you shall have no other gods before me, honor your mother and father, remember the Sabbath day, don't murder, don't steal, all those commandments, do you know what that is really saying? When we step out of that, we are destroying relationship with God. But when we live within that, we are deepening our most important relationship. That heart was lost through this tradition of the elders. It's amazing because when you go and read the Old Testament, the authors of the Old Testament, they never wrote about the law as if it was a burdened straitjacket. They wrote it as that which gave them joy in life. It's not in your note sheets, but I wanted to share with you this verse out of Psalm 19, 7 and 8. David writes, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. It's this attitude and this view of God's word that Jesus had come to restore back to his people. Now what's going to happen, as I, meant, as I alluded to at the beginning, the, what's the conflict? Your disciples are unclean. What's the big conflict behind it? You don't care about the law. Jesus is going to respond by quoting two different sections in the Old Testament. Basically, if I can paraphrase, he's going to respond by going, I have a deep reverence and love for the law, for the law of God. I wrote it. What I don't tolerate is you, is the distortion and the nullification and the rejection of God's word. And so we're going to see that he's going to use an example from Moses to show how their traditions are asking people to flat out reject God's command. And what's amazing about him doing that, if you remember last week we talked about we shrink God, and one way that we don't tend to view God, view God as is being brilliant, but he is. Jesus is a great strategist. The fact that he's using Moses is a brilliant strategy because they, Moses was their figurehead. They tried very vehemently to tie their traditions to Moses and to say, well, this was Moses who gave this to us. So they are God's word. And Jesus is going to use the words out of the words out of Exodus, Moses' own words to go, you are completely denying what you say you believe. So let's continue reading. At verse 6, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people, the religious leaders, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And then in verse 9, he's going to give us a widespread example of how this has been happening. 
And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. If you're a parent of a teenager, you might want to hang on to that verse. But you, but you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like this. And so let's paint the picture a little bit more here. Jesus is quoting Exodus, and he's quoting Leviticus, God's word showing the value of the family system, the value towards parents. Now, honor obviously had a lot of connotations to it, but the one specific example that was very well known in that area was one way you honor your mother and father is as they got older, as they became more elderly and were in need, you would take care of them. That's not uncommon in our day and age either, right? Many of you have taken in a parent or a grandparent who, had tr who needed assistance. And so obviously this was a sacrifice, a financial sacrifice, an emotional sacrifice. What the religious leaders had done is they had created a law called Korban. And Korban was this. Korban in the original language literally means offering. And so using me as an example, I would go to the temple or the religious leaders and I would take, I would declare either my finances, my assets, my property. For our case, let's just focus on money. I would say, all of, I'm going to take a vow of Korban over all of my money. And so what is being said at that point is, my money is dedicated to God for his exclusive use. That sounds really good, right? Here's the problem. There was, no, there was nothing in the law that said I actually had to give that money to the temple. There was nothing in the law that said, and I'm saying the elders' tradition, their law, there was nothing in that law that said I actually needed to change the way I spent my money in any way, shape, or form. By declaring my money to be korban, to be exclusive to God's use, what I did was I excluded anybody else from being able to use my money. And so in this case, the widespread example was, if I did not want to financially take care of my parents, I would declare a law of korban, and now I was religiously, legally not allowed to give them money. In researching this, I found out, let's say I did that, and then I had a change of heart and went, man, that was really selfish. I want to help my money. And I'd go to the religious leaders. They would tell me no. Because I took a vow, I needed to honor the vow. Now, do you see how that is the complete opposite of what Moses wrote in his commands? And what's scary is not just the fact that Jesus addresses this as being widespread. It's that closing comment. He said that you do many things like this. Your religion is perverting the relationship of God. And then Jesus says something very unique. Because again, the culture that the religious leaders had created was, you know what, sin is external. Let's build these walls. We are not sinful. We are super holy people. And Jesus completely drops a bombshell on the way of thinking that sin is not an external thing, but the source truly is internal. So let's keep reading. Verse 14, again, Jesus called the crowd to him. I always wonder when these crowds are forming if they think they're watching like a schoolyard fight or something. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. 
Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. So to put it in more blunt terms, Jesus basically told everybody, do you realize that the human heart is a defilement factory? That do you know why there's sin in the world? Do you know why the world can be a messed up place? Because of the heart. And he goes on to, he goes on with this point, verse 17. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. See, last week we saw the disciples, their hearts were getting hard, and that happens to us as well, especially when we hear a truth we don't like. And so Jesus needs to smash through some walls for them, like he has to do in our lives as well. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out their body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. There's another editorial comment there. I'm going to come back to that. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly, all these evils come from inside and defile a person. Why would an amazing movement like how the Pharisees started, why would an amazing idea to help make the way of God practicable and accessible, how could that go from what we have now? Because our hearts are capable of taking awesome things, taking great things, taking normal things and defiling them. Our hearts are where sin comes from. Jesus is going, we're so worried about the external. And here was the problem. See, the Pharisees had created this structure when they could control, basically, the church. They could control God. They could control their purity because they weren't the problem. But Jesus is dropping this bombshell going, no, understand, we are the problem. Our hearts are where sin comes from. The world is messed up because our heart is messed up. Now, to close the comment on the scripture, remember I mentioned that editorial comment where it says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. What is not, being, what is not implied in that, and I don't have a lot of time to get into it, so I'll say this is like a Pastor Mike sidebar. What is not implied in that is Jesus going, yeah, you know, the old, because the Old Testament did give us food laws and did give us clean laws through that. He's not going, you know what, those laws of the Old Testament, you're right, they were outdated. Uh, you know what, let's just change this because this is wrong. The law of the Old Testament was always meant to restore, but it was also always meant to point to the fact that it will be fulfilled one day in the Christ. And so Jesus is here going, I am now fulfilling these laws. And so by declaring that all foods are clean, what he's saying is now I am what makes you clean. And that is an amazing truth. So that's our passage today. Now, there's a lot there, and I want to focus on just two truths, two obvious truths, but profound ones nonetheless that came out of it. So there on your note sheet, you've got a section titled, Two Truths. The first fill-in is this, sin comes from the heart. Sin comes from the heart. Again, to use some of the language we've been saying, it's not an external issue that happens to us, it's an internal issue. 
Have you ever watched the television show House? Ever got it? My wife and I were into it for a few episodes a couple years back. If you've never seen House, it stars a lovable curmudgeon doctor. And I'm sure, like, it was on for a long time, like nine years or something. I'm sure there were actual storylines with the characters. But I remember about House is pretty much every episode was the same that a patient came in with some type of ailment, weird exotic disease, an injury, or a combination of all of the above, and they would spend a majority of the episode misdiagnosing, treating it the wrong way, they would always flatline at a certain point, and then in the last few minutes, Dr. House would have a revelatory experience. You know, he'd see like a paint splotch or a piece of avocado in the shape of a syringe, and he'd sit there and go, I know what it is! and he'd heal them and everything would be happy, right? That's about nine years, nine seasons in a nutshell. Um, But the thing I love about the idea of house is it brings up a good point for us today, and that's this. Until we know what the actual cause of our disease is, we're going to mistreat it. Until we know what the actual cause of our poison is, We're going to go, we're going to follow after the wrong solutions. And that's the point that Jesus is making through it, through his statement. Sin comes from the heart. Now, let's let's be honest. It's not a popular truth in our culture, is it? Because what does our culture teach? We are all basically good people. Maybe occasionally we make mistakes, but we're really good people, and that's what the religious leaders thought of at the time. I like to say we live in a very disnified culture in the way you view the heart, because what's that, like Pollyanna-type attitude? If you only follow your heart, it's going to lead you to your dreams and your best life. You're going to live in a castle happily ever after. And we sit there and go, oh, that's so nice. But let's bring some reality into this. Now, I'm not asking you to raise your hands, because I don't want to put anybody on the spot. But can you identify at least one time in your life where you made a decision that your heart told you 100% this is the way to go, this is the way to do it, only that that turned out to be one of the worst decisions you've ever made in your life, only to have that blow up in your face. And we look at this Disney message, and then we look at us and be like, what went wrong? You know what went wrong? Your heart. Your heart is messed up, and it led you astray. In fact, I mentioned how God's, God's truth got lost under all these traditions. This isn't a new truth. This was always in God's word that our hearts are messed up. There in your note sheet, I put, I put a statement out of the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 17. He writes, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond here. Who can understand it? Now, I struggle with that sometimes because I, I, I don't want this to be true. I sit there and go, I'm decent person, right? But in preparing for this message, I paused and took an honest look at my heart and my life, and I realized, man, when I honestly stop and look at the state of my heart, yeah, my heart is messed up. For me personally, two things came to mind very immediately when I examined my heart. The first one was conflict, that I realized You know, when I engage in conflict with my wife or family or friends or even an organization or institution, my heart's natural reaction is not to restore, but to destroy. Man, something messed up about that. The other thing that came to mind very quickly when I took a look at my heart was pride. And you know what, specifically, I find myself, it is so easy for me to have a critical spirit. 
It is so easy for me to criticize everything and everyone and go, well, obviously, I would do this better. Even areas in which I have no business criticizing because I don't have any talent in that field. And it's amazing how we always sit there and we, I sit there and it's going like, hmm, I could do this better. I could do this better in everything and anything. And in fact, and I'm guilty of this as well, one big area where that happens is in the church. That for some reason, that because of our hearts, we find ourselves that as soon as we walk into this building, it's like the critical spirit light turns on. And we look around and we just find everything nitpicked. We're like, well, this about the music, the donuts, the way the pastors look, like all that going on. And we don't realize it, but we start taking this attitude like, man, Jesus is so lucky he has me. And that's the wrong place to be. Now, I could keep going on and on about examples. After all, Jesus gave us a list, did he not? But those are just two examples from my life, and maybe you can relate. But there's something wrong in my heart. There is something wrong. I'm seeing the truth. And to even hammer this point home further, have you realized that nobody taught us to be messed up? We're just naturally good at it? I have an 18-month-old son. I did not teach my son to angrily say no and try to hit my wife or I. I did not teach my son to be selfish. I did not teach my son to scream mine, to disobey. I didn't teach him these things, but he's good at it. (laughs) Just like we were and we are. See, there's something wrong. We can't deny the fact that Jesus is right on. The heart is messed up. This is not a fun truth, is it? So the question comes up, well, then why does he share this? I was happy living in ignorance. (laughs) Why does Jesus share this truth? Does Jesus bring this up? And this is the image religion gives us because he wants to wag a finger in my face, because he wants to push my face down in the dirt and go, you will never measure up. You are not good enough. Is that why Jesus does it? Not at all. See, understand something. Our God is not always a comfortable God but it's for our benefit. It's been in my experience that when I feel uncomfortable about a truth out of the Bible is because that's where he's trying to get my attention. The reason why Jesus brings up this truth is out of love because he sees the state of our heart and he goes, you are messed up, your heart is messed up, but as a perfect parent, I love you far too much to not do anything about it. See, like any good parent in this room knows, like, you stand by your kids no matter what. You love them even when they rebel and walk away. And here is Jesus going, I want to solve the problem of your heart. I have come into this world not to abandon you, but to come and show you that I am the solution, that I love you, that I'm here to rectify this problem. See, I can't understand the depth of that grace and that love, but that's why Jesus brings up the truth because here's what I love that comes out of this scripture. Jesus reveals to us the truth of our condition so that we can see that he is the only source of our transformation. Jesus reveals the truth of our condition that we have a busted, defiled heart so that we can see that he is the only source of our transformation. And that leads us to the second point in your note sheets. Only Jesus makes us new. 
My pride doesn't like this, but it doesn't negate that it's true. There is absolutely nothing in my power I can do to fix my defiled heart. See, because the damage is too great. It's not as if my heart needs a simple coat of paint or an oil change. My heart is dead because of sin. What my heart needs is a resurrection. And thankfully, we have a Jesus that specializes in that. See, in a couple chapters in Mark chapter 9, we're going to see Jesus use a famous picture where he says, hey, if your eye is causing you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. And that's kind of a drastic step, isn't it? But what he's talking about, again, he's talking about the gravity and the severity of sin. And I think about this, go, man, if my eye or my hand, if that was the only source of sin in me, if that was the problem, as drastic as that step would be, I would still love the fact that I had an option under my own power. Okay, cut it off, gouge it out. Now I'm good and I'm ready to take on the world again, right? But the problem runs deeper. When I think about that, when I think about how I try to do it on my own power, it makes me think of, I love like those cheesy action movies from the late 80s, early 90s, like anything with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone. And they're all the same, right? There's always that scene where like an Arnold Schwarzenegger's running from the predator or 10 predators, and he's been shot a hundred times. He's got shrapnel in his leg. He finds this random bunker out there. And what does he do? On his own power, he pulls out all the bullets. He pulls out out the shrapnel, he stitches himself back up, and now he's like better than ever. Now he walks out and slaughters an island full of people, and you sit there and like, he did that. He did that in his own power, and I realized spiritually when it came to my heart and the defilement in my heart, I want to be the spiritual equivalent of Arnold Schwarzenegger. I want to do this on my own, but I can't. Because the only solution to my defiled heart is a brand new one, and it's not within my power to pull my heart out and to give myself a brand new one. The key word in this is new. Only Jesus makes us new. See, when we give our lives to Jesus, that can sound like a churchy phrase, but what happens is in an incredible act of repentance, when we say, Jesus, I've been trying to be the king of my limited kingdom, but you truly are the king of the universe, and I wanna be in your kingdom. When we say not our way, but your way, do you know what happens? Jesus invades our life. Jesus changes us from the inside out and he makes us brand new creations. See, the problem that happens sometimes is we have a tendency to minimize awesome things and we sometimes minimize what it means to be a brand new creation. Sometimes, and this is kind of a religious view of it, we sit there and go, okay, so I'm a new creation. That means I go to church more, I try to curse a little bit less, and in December I say Christmas rather than Xmas, right? I'm a new creation as you go into it. But the reality is when the Bible describes a new creation, it describes it as a radical change. It describes it as a revolution that occurred in your life. It describes it as nothing is the same anymore because now you went from being separated from God, the biggest change is when Jesus invades your life and doesn't lead, you now became the church. The church is not this building. The church is you because the church is where God dwells. And what does he do? Where does he dwell? Well, in your brand new heart, your God-given heart. See, the biggest change that happens is that Jesus takes your dead heart that was defined by sin, 
and he gives you a brand new one that is now defined by him. I like, it's there on your note sheets how the Apostle Paul puts this in Colossians. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. See, I love that. You have a brand new life because Jesus rose and he rose you too. And what he says is while we're on this world, before we're in the presence of God, before God takes us home, now the barrier has been removed between us and God. Now we can pursue God and we can pursue the things that matter because only through God do we find purpose and fulfillment, hope in our lives. Only through God, because of a brand new heart, we see things differently, do we not? We see Jesus, do we not, in a, in a brand new, hopeful way. There's many of you in this building right now that when you came to Jesus, one of your first thoughts was, man, the real Jesus is not what I imagined or pictured or thought I had encountered through religion. The real Jesus is completely different. One of the marks of the brand new heart we're given, the living, beating heart that God gives us when he says that set your minds on the things above, those set your hearts on the things above, those are the things that are eternal. And what that means is because of my brand new heart, my eyes have been opened to see that this world, this world that one day will fade away is no longer the only thing that matters. The most important thing now is what's eternal, and that's his kingdom. Now, until we're in the presence of God fully, until we're on that side of his kingdom, our hearts are still, we're imperfect people, and our hearts are still going to struggle with wanting to be tugged back towards the dark, wanting to be tugged back towards the defilement. And so this process of God renewing our hearts is a continual process. When you come to the Lord and give your life to him, it's not a, it's not a one and done. It's the beginning of a journey. And so we want to be a people that are continually giving our hearts back to God. And so there on your note sheet, there's two action steps I listed out for you. There's a section called a new creation, changing from the inside out. And that first fill-in is examine. How do we continually make our hearts new, aimed at God? Well, we need to develop the habit in prayer to continually ask our God, our creator, to examine the state of our hearts. We want to go to God and go, show me what's in there. Show me, am I holding on to any sin? What is going on in my heart? Now, the truth is, this can be a little intimidating. I know for me, I, I don't want to know sometimes. But here's the encouragement. When we open our hearts to God, what we're saying is, God, is there any darkness in my heart because I want your light to wash it all out? You know what else we're doing through this step? Is we are the church as Christ followers. And unlike the Pharisees and the religious rulers, if we develop that discipline and habit of giving our heart and going, God, this is yours, then we are declaring you are in control of your church. You know what else happens when we give our heart to the Lord? He doesn't just bring up the bad stuff, but he brings up the encouragement of truth. He doesn't just sit there and go, here's the bad thing because you're awful. Hey, here's something that's keeping you from fully experiencing my kingdom. Let's deal with this together. So what do we ask? Well, in prayer, it's starting to ask the question, God, where is my heart holding on to sin? Scary question, but an awesome question. Father, where are my blinders at? Where am I, is my heart holding on to sin? And be specific. Ask for different scenarios in my family, in my workplace, just in the privacy of my mind. 
is there anywhere I'm holding on to sin? There in your note sheet, I put a quote from Bill Hybels, pastor of Willow Creek Church in in, uh, Chicago. In his book, Too Busy Not to Pray, he writes, after years and years of engaging in these meaningful conversations with God, I've noticed that several questions tend to crop up when I'm inviting him to speak. The first is, what's the next step in developing my character? I almost always hear from God when I ask that question because there's always an edge of my life he is trying to round out. The first step is to ask God, examine my heart. The second step is very much tied to the first step is once the Lord reveals something, act. And that's your fill-in. Act. Do something. The knowledge without action isn't going to accomplish anything. Now, depending on what the Lord reveals to you, the actions are going to be different all across the board. Sometimes the actions are quick and easy. I'm like, great. Sometimes this is going to be painful and long and maybe arduous, but it's all for the benefit of continuing to refine your new character, your new creation. Now, I can't get into the specifics again because it's going to be for different for different people. But one thing I want to talk generally about is sometimes, again, the action that you're being asked to do is going to be a very difficult thing. And remember, we sit there and go, I don't know if I can do this. I'm overwhelmed by this. Remember that one of the gifts that the Lord has given us to be a people that are sold out for him is the gift of community. See, Jesus invaded your life and he ain't going anywhere. And he models that so you know, despite what the enemy tells you, despite what other people may tell you, you are not alone. And from that model, that's what the church community is supposed to look like, that we stand with Jesus and we stand with one another. See, I know in my life, when I have faced intimidating, scary things, when I face that journey where the Lord is refining me, it can be overwhelming. It can be, I don't know if I, you have that thought, I don't know if I can do this, but I know when I'm standing with godly men and women by my side who are picking me up, who are giving me strength, who are praying for me, who are saying, you're not going to go into that fire alone, we're going to go with you. Man, that's a fight worth fighting. Specifically, in a couple weeks, you're going to notice that we're going to start our sign-ups for life group season. What a life group is, is a group of men and women that get together weekly to learn how to do life together. It's not perfect people. It's people learning how to be more and more like God created them to be. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't gotten a chance to get into a life group, please jump into a life group because this is where we're going to get that support to run into battle together. I'm going to invite the worship team to come out. And as I do that, we're going to be sharing a new song with you. Many months ago, I was in Atlanta doing a couple of church visits. And when I was there, I heard this song played. And it was one of those experiences that completely knocked me off my feet. This song sums up so well the message out of the scripture today to where we're going to get to sing over and over again the phrase, here's my heart, speak what is true. During this time, too, the ushers are going to come forward and we're going to receive our gifts and offering. If you do me a favor, would you stand together? And we're going to pray as we go into this time. Father God, a phrase that that has often rung in my head is the fact that sin is a big deal, but you know what? You are such a bigger deal. Father, I thank you that while there's nothing I can do about the problem of my heart, It needs a resurrection, and that's what you do best. Father, thank you that you give us life. Thank you that you don't leave us and abandon us to do this alone. 
thank you that you turn us into your church because you want to dwell with your creation. I pray as we sing the song, Lord, let this be a loud declaration for us. Let this be the mark of our lives that we are continually giving our hearts back to God and saying, speak what is true. Not what I think, not what I hope is true. Speak your life-giving truth. In your son's name we pray, amen. You know what happens when you have a healthy heart? You live. I mean, really live. And that was God's heart for his people all along. It's for us to have life and to have it to the full. As an encouragement before we leave, I just want to share with you a few more of Paul's words from Colossians 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. See, our dead hearts were defined by sin. Our new hearts are defined in him. If you'd like to pray with somebody before you leave this place today, over on the left side, uh, over to my left on that side of the auditorium, there's a prayer corner with some amazing men and women that would love to be able to chat with you and pray with you. Hope you can join us next week. Hope you can invite somebody to come and be here as well. Um, up to this point in Jesus' ministry, we've seen his ministry has been primarily to the nation of Israel and the region of the Galilee. What we're gonna see next week is Jesus is gonna have two encounters outside of those national barriers, too, to speak, so to speak. And we're gonna see that this king that has come didn't just come for a single people group, but he came for the world. So I hope you can be with us. Have a great week. See you then.